Virgil, 1 Corinthians. So if you need a 1 Corinthians, there's a handful of people that have them. So just raise your hand and somebody can get one to you. And then everything we've ever done is all up here. So if you're missing one from past weeks that you want to add to your collection, this box will always be here with, just come find whatever you need. All right. Are we about ready to go? All right. So here's the dealio. We are, jump in there, Chad. Chad's taking the whole box. Uh, so what we're trying to do here is one week overviews of every book in the New Testament. We have done Luke and Acts and Romans. I forget what we've done. James, Philippians. Is that it? Is that it maybe? Uh, this week we're going to do 1 Corinthians. And then next week we're going to do 2 Corinthians. Um, and so uh, 1 Corinthians I thought would be a good idea to do before we finish our series in the sanctuary on 1 Corinthians. Okay, you, this, this might have a little more familiarity to it because we've just been teaching through that the last, you know, couple of months. Um, but we'll give, it, we'll give you the high-level view, and then, again, we're going to finish up the Corinthians set next week. One thing I want you to go back several weeks to, though, is the book of Acts, okay? So when we did Acts, I always, I always invite people when you begin to read the New Testament, or if you're doing a new through the read, through the, through the New Testament read, that you'd go, Luke, Acts, Romans, Luke, Acts, Romans, Luke, Acts, Romans. That gives you a really good base. And within the Luke, Acts, Romans set, of course, is Acts. And what's really helpful about beginning with Acts is that gives you, the, gives you the whole overview of the whole thing. Most, not quite all of, but most of the letters that we have in the New Testament, you can plug them back in to the book of Acts, right? Uh, that you could understand. We're going to be studying 1 Corinthians here, which is a letter to the church in Corinth. And there was a moment where Corinth was the primary location. It was the setting for the book of Acts. As, as, the, as Paul was traveling around the Roman Empire and preaching the gospel, there's a time where he goes to Corinth. And so I think it's helpful just as you're trying to build kind of a comprehensive set, you get and you understand, you know this whole thing, to know where does the letter of the first Corinthians fit into the Acts timeline. And the answer to that is, does anybody know where Paul plants the church in Corinth? Like where, well, he plants the church in Corinth in Corinth, but where in the, where in the chronology of Acts does he plant the church in Corinth? Anybody know what that is? Let me know this. It is. It's Acts 18. All right. And I want to, we're going to start there in Acts 18 to kind of understand what was going on when he starts this particular church. So if you've got our Bible, go to Acts 18. We'll begin there and then we'll, we'll kind of launch out of there into the letter itself. And Acts 18, as you read it, it might give you a little bit of a, a little bit of insight into the tone and mood of the letter we have here. Um, not only the first letter, but the second letter. Take a look at this. It says in Acts 18, verse 1, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And there he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, and da 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 and on we go. This is the tent maker scene where Paul is making tents with Priscilla and Aquila. And if you, read, if you follow through Acts 18, what you'll find is that this was a super low point for Paul. Corinth was tough. Corinth was really, really difficult for him. Uh, you'll see here in verse 5, 18.5, when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia. By the way, what's the lead city of Macedonia? We studied this a couple weeks ago. What's the, what's the primary city in Macedonia? Uh, no. This is, we, we looked at the letter from this. Do you remember this? What are the, what are the letters we already did? Philippi. Philippi. Okay, so remember what, and what are the Philippians famous for? 
their generosity, their giving. The Macedonian churches were the ones that give. It's a major theme is how generous the Macedonians were. Take a look at this. In verse 5, when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching. You know what that means? In verse 5, what's that? It means they support him. He quit his job. A verse earlier, he was... He was only doing ministry on the Sabbath, and the rest of the week he was making tents. He had to get a job. He was cutting canvas so he'd have enough money to pay the rent and eat. But then when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, from Philippi, he, they brought a bag of money. Paul quit his job and went full-time preaching, okay? So, but as it, as it goes on in verse 6, watch this. It says, but when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. It's a massive moment. We've talked about this. We saw in the book of Romans the tension over the gospel coming to the Jews and coming to the Gentiles. It's a major, major theme. This is a, this is a message for the Jews. Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. It is the fulfillment of the hopes of the people of Israel. But then the Jews don't want it. And he begins to go and spread the gospel to the, in, to the Gentile world. What's going on right here in Acts 18, as the church of Corinth is being planted, is that Paul has reached a breaking point. He is so tired of opposition from the Jews that he makes a resolution that he will never... I wonder if we could put these... Do we have more of these? You want to see if anybody else needs them, feel free. There's a, he, he makes a resolution, I'll never share the gospel with another Jew as long as I live. He's it. I'm done. From now on, we're going to the Gentiles. And that resolution lasts one verse. Just look. <laughs> From now on, I go to the Gentiles. Verse 6, Paul left the synagogue. There you go, Paul. And he went next door to the house of uh, Titius Justice, worshiper of God. And in verse 8, Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and presumably a Jew, and his entire household of Jews, believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. Okay, So Paul is like so tired, he doesn't want to do it anymore, but he can't not do it anymore because he loves the Jewish people, and he continues to preach the gospel. Okay, Now, typically, what do, you, what do you imagine would happen, by the way, if you were the synagogue ruler and you become a follower of Christ? How's that going to impact your vocation? <laughs> it's poor, right? Just keep that in mind. What's the synagogue ruler's name? Crispus. Just hold on to that, okay? But it's so difficult. In verse 9, one night the Lord speaks to Paul in a vision. He says, don't be afraid. Why do you tell people not to be afraid? Because they're afraid. Keep on speaking. Paul is constantly speaking, right? It's astonishing he's got to tell him to keep on speaking. But what it means is he doesn't want to talk anymore. Do not be silent. Paul is so tired of the abuse. Everywhere he goes, there's a revival and a riot. And the riots have grown wearisome to him. So, God says, I'm going to be with you. No one's going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. What do you think that phrase means? I have many people in this city. Does it mean that there's an armed guard that's going to protect you? No. What does it mean? Believers, prayer warriors. I think there's something even more subtle even than that. Robin? That's right. Robin said, ones he has their hearts, but they don't know yet. It is, I think it's akin to when um, Elijah is before the prophets of Baal, and, God, and he's just so discouraged, he doesn't want to play anymore, he's so tired of the opposition, and God says, I've reserved 7,000 for myself 
who have not yet bowed the knee to Baal. What he's saying is there are elect people. You keep preaching the gospel, Paul, because people are going to respond. You don't be silent because I'm going to use you even in this city. Stay in the game. Take the hit. Remain. It'll be okay. Keep doing it. And so Paul, ever the faithful servant, he keeps his head down and he does it. And it says in verse 11 that Paul stayed, this is all in Corinth, for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. He continues. Now what's curious here is that God has made a promise to Paul that he has many people in the city. People are going to respond. They're going to believe. There'll be faith. There'll be fruitfulness. Just stay in the game. But then we don't see any more fruit. We don't see any more explicit statements of people coming to faith. Just that Paul continues to preach and there continues to be an uproar. Look at verse 14. It says, just as Paul was about to speak, oh no, we'll start in verse 12. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul, as usual, and brought him into court. This man they charged is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. And just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to the Jews, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names in your own law, settle the matter for, yourself, the matter for yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he had them ejected from the court. And watch this. This is so interesting. In verse 17, it says, They all turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court. Who was the synagogue ruler earlier? Crispus. Crispus. Who's the synagogue ruler now? Why isn't it Crispus? He became a believer, right? So, you know, he loses his job. You start following Jesus, you're going to lose your job, right? So he does. They replace him with this guy, Sosthenes. And Sosthenes is now leading the charge. So the, the, the mob comes, the crowd comes. But they get embarrassed by the Romans. The Romans aren't interested in, like, well, just, who cares? We don't care about your stupid religious squabbles. And so they just kind of dismiss them. Nobody knows. We don't really know who the they is in verse 17. Then they all turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court. But Gallio showed no concern, whatever. There's basically three possibilities. It's either the Romans or the Jews or the Christians. Okay? Probably one of the three. Either the Christians are like, ha! You didn't defeat us. We're going to pound you down. I think that's the least likely of the options. Okay? It's possible that the Romans beat him because they're just tired of the Jews making a mess and just you know, clogging up the courts. And it's possible that the Jews beat him because they were just embarrassed that he just did such a terrible job prosecuting this, okay? But we don't know. It's just they beat Sosthenes, right? Robin? <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Say it a little bit louder. People are coughing. Yes. And this, I don't think that that's the kind of promise that Solomon got earlier because he told him that I'm going to show you the things you're going to suffer. That's right. Because of me. Yes. And, and then it turns around and it falls on this. Uh, Sosthenes. Yeah. So it is interesting. So what Paul, you know, God is, when God said, do not, don't be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, I'm with you. No one's going to attack and harm you in verse 10. And then in verse uh, 12, it says they made a united attack on Paul. Like one verse later, God's like, no one's going to attack and harm you. And in the next verse, they attack him, but he slips the noose, right? So you got to be careful. I'm sure Paul was like, what did you mean exactly when you said no one's going to attack and harm you? And don't you think that's the case? Doesn't, don't you feel like God makes promises and you're like, wow, I thought you might have fulfilled this promise differently than you did. 
right? So Paul is ultimately kept safe. He ultimately prevails, but it was still, it's high stakes. And then he's going to go to the next city and the next city and the next city, and it's all going to be the same, okay? But here's what I want you to notice. Sosthenes, he's leading the thing. He gets beat. And I don't know, do you guys, is it more obvious to you? Do you think it was the Christians that beat him up? Anybody on like team Christian gang? Okay. It has to be the Jews because in the previous verse it says he drove them away from the judgment seat. And so if you see in verse 17, they, you have to go back to an antecedent to find out who they're talking about. Yes. That's, so, so, well, if, yeah, so the trick of a pronoun, figuring out the antecedent to a pronoun can be a little bit complicated. Um, and it, it could absolutely be the them that were rejected, the, most, the, the previous thing. I th- and I think that's the right answer. But it's possible that they could refer to um, the one who had them ejected in, the, in their Gallio and the whole Roman system. But I think it was the Jews. But who knows, okay? But here's what you've got to get. Sosthenes, Crispus is the synagogue ruler. Paul doesn't want to talk to Jews anymore, but okay, I'll make this one exception. Then he does, and his whole family comes to faith, right? They replace Crispus with Sosthenes. Sosthenes leads this whole, you know, criminal activity against Paul. They all get embarrassed, and he gets his teeth kicked in. And then that's all we get. We don't get any more details, right? It says in verse 18, Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time, and then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria, and we're out of Corinth. Okay, that is, so that chunk right there, that is our Corinthian base as we understand the letter. Okay, but here, I want you to notice something. Think about this, okay? First Corinthians is the letter we're about to study. Who wrote it? Who wrote First Corinthians? Paul? Paul? Are you sure? And our brother. Look it up. Go to First Corinthians chapter one, verse one. Look it up. First Corinthians chapter one. Let's just start. These, there's these opening verses that we always get because they're like blah blah blah. Listen to this. Corinthians 1.1, Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes. Isn't that fascinating? So Sosthenes, who leads the attack against Paul, the second synagogue ruler who's oppositional to this, he gets his head kicked in. Paul stays in that city for some time. Sosthenes comes to faith becomes a disciple of Paul, and co-authors scripture. See also, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. I have many people in this city. In Acts, we don't get, we don't, we don't get the P.S. Sosthenes comes to faith and becomes, but, but if you read 1 Corinthians, and if you don't skip the little detail stuff in verse 1, that's Sosthenes. That's our guy that led the attack. And Paul, who is faithful to take the hit, and to take the hit, and to take the hit, it produces fruit. And Sosthenes helps write Bible. Isn't that amazing? Okay, so it's just, I'll, just, I'll throw that out there just to say it is worth paying attention to the details. The Bible rewards diligent study. And there's all kinds of like little Easter eggs that are just so interesting and so delicious. It will take the time to notice them. All right, Groovy? All right, Corinthians. Uh, does anybody have 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 memorized? You <laughs> have this? All Scripture is God-breathed. Anybody have this one? All Scripture is God-breathed. Useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Right? Okay. Not all letters are an equal distribution of teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. 
1 Corinthians is very heavy on correction. Very heavy. Sprinkled in with a little bit of rebuke. And along the way, we're going to teach you some things, okay? Romans is very high teaching, very little rebuke. It's just all teaching, 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 teaching. Galatians, pretty strong rebuke, right? I mean, very heavy on the rebuke. Corinthians is a corrective letter. So when you read through it here, what you're going to find is Paul is constantly saying, you're wrong about this, and you're wrong about this, and you're wrong about this, and you're wrong about this. Corinth was a mess. Corinth was a tricky letter. And we've looked, and we've been hearing it. We, we preached on it over the last year, so there's all kinds of things. But there's a whole bunch of stuff in Corinthians that is corrective and difficult. So even without looking at it, okay, I mean, you can look if you want, but, but what, are they, what, what, what do you remember about the errors of the Corinthians? What are they getting wrong? And you have a long list to choose from. But I'm curious what, what, what pops to you. Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. The Corinthians are screwing up the Lord's Supper. We just studied that. That's chapter 11. We looked at it a couple weeks ago. What was the, what's the primary error of the way that they were celebrating the Lord's table? Being selfish. They're not thinking about the rest of the body. That's right. They were selfish. Total disregard for the gathered body. It's just me, me, I, I. How much bread and wine can I get out of the deal, basically, right? So they're selfish people, and Paul rebukes them strongly for that. Robin? Weren't they having trouble with having a foot in the culture and in their faith and finding some kind of balance in that? Absolutely. Yeah. So Robin says, weren't they having a trouble with getting one foot in the culture, one foot in the faith? Yeah. So that one of the themes of you know the letter to the Corinthian Christians is act more like Christians and less like Corinthians, right? So he picks, and, the, and the, the reality is that the city that they're dwelling in, their own town, is not just the Jews and we you know we're, we're putting all this opposition, but Corinth was a very indulgent city, right? It's you know I I generally liken uh, to the you know be like the church. Uh, in Las Vegas, right? So they are influenced by their local thing. What are, what are some of the ways that the Corinthian worldview was seeping into the church? Do you guys remember? Like the specific way that the culture leaks in. What is wrong in Corinth? Remember any of his corrective rebukes? Who is that? Kelly Sue? Uh, me. Sacrifice to idols. Yes. Okay. So, here, so what's this all about? And we, let's see. Did we do this already? We didn't do it here, but did we do it in the city? Did we talk about meat sacrificed to idols and how that all works out? Like, the, there's a huge worship industry, and so all the meat, if you wanted a side of beef, you couldn't just go to the butcher and get beef. You would go down to the temple and buy meat that had been sacrificed to an idol. And so the Corinthians were very distressed. Like, if we, go, if we want to eat meat, it's necessarily going to be meat that was sacrificed to an idol are we allowed to eat it? Are we not allowed to eat it? If I do eat it, am I like essentially, am I compromising and worshiping these pagan deities? Or if I don't, am I just got to be a vegan? Like how is this going to work out? So, so the meat sacrifice idols is a major thing that Paul has to work through with them. We can see a little bit of what his correction is there when we get there. Other stuff? Yep. Immodesty. Immodesty, yes. There's all kind, and, and I would even broaden that, all kinds of sexual perversion. He, he rebukes them because there's somebody in the church. You guys remember this? Like, what is the deal? Somebody is sleeping with his father's, so with his stepmom. Is that what this is? Somebody's having sex with his stepmom. And Paul's like, I mean, what are you guys, what's that all about? What are you, what's going on? And so it's just an indulgent culture. And those things are all leaking through and they're having a hard time. And so Paul is trying to clean that up. That's great. Spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts. They're really bad at that. This is our primary place. We get our teaching on spiritual gifts in particular the supernatural gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, specifically because they were bad at it. 
they were messing up the gifts, and he's got to fix, you know, he's got to fix into that. And then even the passage that Landon taught on and will teach on this morning, chapter 13, is sandwiched in between that. So it's really 12 and 14 are spiritual gifts. 13 is about love, but it's not like Paul interrupted himself. It's, it's 12, 13, 14 is all a set that they are, they're, again, they're just selfish and they're performative. And he's got to call and he's got to clean that whole mess up. Very good. Any other big things that you remember? For the Corinthians. Okay. Then we'll, we'll come. We're going to run through. We're gonna, I'm going to give you the, the big high level view of all their stuff. But there's a couple more things I want you to notice. When you study 1 Corinthians, you could broadly, issue, you could broadly separate their, the topics that Paul addresses into two categories. One is the stuff that Paul brings up because he's troubled by, he's distressed by, and he wants to correct them about. Do you know what the second list, the second category is? Answering questions they had. Answering questions they had. If you flip over to the back of your, back of your sheet, I want you to notice kind of how Paul does this and the tag you're looking for. This phenomenon here, it's, it's, sometimes it's very obvious. Sometimes it's just super clear to see. But you can apply this throughout the rest of the Bible. Sometimes there will be recurring phrases that are meant, to, you're meant to see them as like, uh, subheadings, section headings, okay? So Paul begins this. He says in chapter 7, he says, Now for the matters, plural, that you wrote about. Quote, it is good for a man not to marry. That, that, that is kind of like, our, that is where the point in chapter 7 in 1 Corinthians, Paul switches from the first six chapters or stuff that he wants to talk about because he's annoyed. You did this wrong, this is not going well, this is not going well. And then from chapter 7 on, it's all responding to things that they have said and then with whole, he, he doesn't, he still talked about what he wants to talk about, but he allows their letter to be an outline. So there was, oftentimes you write somebody a letter, they write you one back. You write them a letter, they write you one back. And so Paul is, this letter is a response to a letter that he had gotten from the Corinthians. To their credit, they wanted answers, right? So that you can, you can get the sense of this letter as being a correction, a rebuke of, hey, pay attention to me, you know, and he's not, but, but in fact, it's a dialogue. And they had written him, they wanted answers. They wanted to understand things. And so they wrote him a letter, and Paul writes them back. Now, chapter 7 is broadly misunderstood. We, we talked about this. I think I preached on this like a month or so ago. But he says this. Now, for the matters you wrote about, quote, it is good for a man not to marry. I think generations of Christians have thought that Paul was saying, it is good for a man not to marry. Paul is not saying it's good for a man not to marry. Paul is saying, you said, Corinthians, that it is good for a man not to marry, and let me tell you why you're wrong, okay? So that's in quotes because he's quoting them. So now for the matters you wrote about. First thing you talked about, you said that people should, should, Christians should all just be celibate for the rest of their lives. And he walks through and says, yeah, that's a pretty bad idea, and I think that's just going to be a recipe for sexual immorality, so no. And then he's going to use that same phrase over and over again. He's going to say in, later in chapter 7, now about virgins, now about food sacrificed to idols, now about spiritual gifts, now about the collection for God's people, now about our, about, about our brother Apollos. What you should read there is that every one of those is that he is responding to something that they raised, something going on that he, they were troubled by, they were confused by. And he's like, hey, let me, let me clean this up. We'll talk about that for a minute. Let me talk about that. But then when he does, now that we're on the topic of your claim that everybody should be single for the rest of their lives, Paul uses that. He kind of gets his foot in the door, and he's like, and while we're here, here's a few other things you're screwing up, and let me talk about that, right? And then they'll raise a new topic. He's like, let me answer your question, but you're, you had a question about, you know, this going on and food sacrifice to idols, and I'm going to use that as a segue to start talking about communion. 
They didn't ask about communion. They asked about food sacrifice to idols, but he uses it as a bridge. First he answers their questions, and then he takes it towards something they need to do. So when you read through the letter, anytime you see now about, now about, now about, just know that's Paul responding to the stuff that they had said. Make sense? Okay. Questions about any of that so far? No, no, no. Okay. So we're going to watch that. And then we're going to, I want to go back to the front. We're just going to run through, but we're going to come to the gospel as an application in a few minutes. But come back to the front. What I tried to do here, this was a little bit tricky. I went through the whole letter and I tried to say, really, what are the topics? It's sometimes Paul's letters have a very, um, uh, a very logical flow to them. Sometimes it's very clear that he's making a case and A leads to B, leads to C, leads to D. Corinthians isn't like that. When you read through 1 Corinthians, it's really, it's a checklist. I want to talk to you about this. I want to talk about this. I want to correct this because you're screwing this up. I want to talk about this. I'm going to answer your questions and while we're here, we'll talk about this. And then you asked another question about that. And so it's, it's very staccato, okay? It's hard to follow. You could... Largely, you could, you could rearrange the, chapter, uh, the, the chapters in 1 Corinthians and it would still be just as coherent because there are a bunch of individual bricks. Does that make sense? You with me? Okay. But take a look at this. And in fact, what I'll do is I'll give you just a minute at your tables and you guys can go through. Uh, I'll, I'll have comments on a handful of these. But I want you to just take a second. I don't think you need me to read it to you. But take a minute and like look at at least the bold, at least the topic heads. And then the ones that interest you, read, I, I chose, this is the topic with a short, you know, three-word three phrase. And then here's the passage that captures it, captures it, captures it, captures it. So this is a summary of the book. Which, but it's hard to summarize because there's so many discrete, distinct, unique topics that he covers. Okay? So take a minute. You guys can chat about it. Point out the things that are interesting to you. And then I'll, I'll just point out to you guys the ones that I think are interesting after you have a chance to digest it. Okay? So have at it. No, no, we're interested. <laughs> okay, here we go. I know everybody in this page. And the husband, Dan. And Ray. Yep, you need more? You need how many more? Yeah, there you go. Yep. Absolutely. Yep.
going to say, we have family that go to churches where they and we've had conversations about that. Because the first time we went to church with them, somebody with back started very loudly speaking in tongues. I just got very scary. All right. Did you have a chance to skim through it at least? Do something to. All right, come on in. Now, some of these are interesting to me, but they might not be the same ones that are interesting to you. So, I'd love to hear any of these things you want to. Com- you got comments on or questions about? I think these are the topics that he covers. But of course, if you double click on each one, they they all explode and all kinds of different insights will drop. So, which ones? Any of these particularly strike you as curious, bewildering? Or you know something fascinating that we'd love to know? Gary? The very first box you have up there, it says, I appeal to you that all of you agree with one another. And Gina brought the point up, how's that ever going to be possible, that all of you agree with you? Right. And that, I mean, that, and that's like, that actually shows up in a number of times in different letters. So he's like, I plead with you to, you know, agree with one another, right? We are supposed to bear with one another, forgive one another. And it's not just a unique feature of the letters in the New Testament. That's... You ever been in a room with people? Like, how many things do you think we disagree about in this room right now? It would just be legion. People are here. Right? I mean, there's so many things. And so, and yet he's like, he's appealing. You get this sense of like, you guys, come on. Like, let's, you guys are just bickering about all these different things. I follow Paul, and I follow Apollos, and all these kind of things. And he's just pleading that we would do it. So how is that even possible, that we would agree with one another if we think that different things are true? What is, well, how, would that, how could that even possibly happen, you guys? The Spirit. Yeah, so we might, it might, is it possible to like somebody even if you think different things about something? Do you know that it's possible? It's rare, but it's, but it's possible, right? So even if, we, even if we have a different perspective or have a different you know, belief about something, we could still respect one another, be kind to one another. And I learn from people that I disagree with all the time, right? I mean, that's the, the value that you bring in my life is that you see something differently than I see it, and you might see something that I don't see, right? It's also really helpful, I think, if we seek to persuade one another instead of just, you know, nipping at each other. If, like, if you think you're right about something that I'm wrong about, like, make your case, like, I would love to make your case, but don't, you're going to have a hard time persuading me if you don't make your case. If you just tell me, like, well, I just feel that way. I'm like, well, okay, great. Like, bring your A game and let's go. Like, I might, you might have some benefit, but do the work to bring, bring the benefit, right? Kat? This is uh, a little bit related to, let me talk about this a little bit, the, like, disputable matters thing. Okay, and Kat, that's so, it's so good that you mentioned that because as good evangelical Christians, we know that there are no disputable matters. We're right and you're wrong, <laughs> right? And Paul throws out this haymaker of, hey, there's some things where it's like it's genuinely vague and I'm not sure, or it genuinely varies situation to situation. He, he, he does this. The, the, what is, do you remember what the primary disputable matter he's, what is he talking about when he raises that, that heading, that, that, that topic? Uh, like the, if somebody's worried about me. Exactly right. You're exactly right. Yes. And so look at, look at the center column here. Look at what he does. And I summarized it this way on purpose. Wisdom about idolatry, 
eat the meat. The next box, wisdom about idolatry. Don't eat the meat, okay? If you read it, do you remember his case? He makes a case for why, why and when Christians should eat meat that was offered to pagans. And then in the next breath, he offers advice to, to, for why Christians should not eat meat that was offered to pagans. And so, depending on your personality type, this could be very frustrating to you. You're like, just, <laughs> what's the answer? And Paul's like, well, it genuinely depends. And some people, some people love that. Some people love it genuinely depends. Like, don't pin me down. Other people, it makes them just kind of go insane, right? Why, what is the reason, I'll come to you in a second, Eric. What is, why should, according to Paul, why should you, why and when should Christians eat meat that was sacrificed to an idol? Jason? Uh, because you shouldn't be superstitious about yeah. these other gods. Yes, that's a great answer. Jason says, because you shouldn't be superstitious. He's like, he's like, listen, they offered their meat to an idol that doesn't exist. Big deal. That's his answer. He's like, we know, we know that there's only one God. And so who gives a crap? Just eat the meat. That's, that's part of his argument. Like, just relax about it. It's nonsense. Just have a steak, okay? But... There's another argument. Why should we not eat meat sacrificed to idols? According to Paul. What is it, it, Dan? Cause your brother. If you cause your brother to fall. Now, why would would eating meat sacrificed to an idol that doesn't exist be a problem for your brother? Because he doesn't think it's wrong. Because he doesn't know, right? And so he sees you, and you're eating this thing offered to, like, Baal or whatever. And he's like, oh, man, I guess Christians worship Baal, too. And maybe I should worship Baal. And, he, and he's like, no, 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 never do that. He's like, if, 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 the thing, if my, when I exercise my freedom, if that's going to damage anybody else, then of course I won't do that. I will go vegan. I won't like it, but I will. Because I, what I like more than pleasing myself is doing good to others. Right? And so he makes a distinction. Like, if you go to the market and they're offering meat, just eat it. Don't even ask the question. Just Kind of a don't ask, don't tell. Just take it home and cook it and eat it and be fine. But if somebody says to you, hey, behold, this was offered to a God. Come worship us with it. Then you'd be like, you know what? Actually, I'm good. I ate at home, right? And so it's situational specific. And so he's, he's, being, he's being wise. Like, think about it. He's like, you're free to. Of course you're free to. But let's never exercise our freedom in a way that's harmful to people, right? It's, it's brilliant. And there are disputable matters. Maybe in this situation we do that. Maybe, in that. maybe under different circumstances we do differently. By the way, not everything is disputable. Right? Paul's pretty clear. He's like, hey, so you're sleeping with your stepmom. I don't think there's much dispute on this. Right? So you've got to be careful. Those of you that love the idea that everything is gray, everything is not gray. Some things are black. Some things are white. Some things are gray. Paul's saying, learn, learn to know the difference. Don't treat gray things like they're black. Don't think black things like they're gray. But let's get it right. And let's, let's move on, okay? Eric? What stood out to me as we discussed and kind of talked about different individual ones, this is really kind of a top 20 hit list of things that we still bicker about, that we still argue about, we still divide certain denominations and even create offshoots. Absolutely. Uh, so it's, even with First Corinthians, we still fight about this. Absolutely. So, and this is, this is the, the, this is so odd. Like if, I don't know, if I were God and I was creating a holy book to instruct my people, I don't think I would have ever done, it wouldn't even occurred to me to do this, right? But what he is, what he has given us in the New Testament, 
largely is a collection of letters to specific people at specific times that had specific questions, that were making specific mistakes, and he engages it in a very incarnational, relational, real-life people way, and then their problems and their solutions and their failings and their misunderstandings become the template that every era of the church can look back and say, yeah, we, we deal with that too. Yes, we have the same question. Yes, we have the same behavioral problem. I would have just said, do this, don't do this. I would, just, you know, I would have written it much more didactically. But, but he's given it to us in this sense of a, a relational community. And then we read their story. We see our story reflected in it. And then we're like, oh, ah, we are like those guys. And we can see it. It's just so fascinating and so and so odd in its, the way it's natural as opposed to this external didactic, you know, imposition on us. This is fascinating. Catherine? Where does he say, um, do not get involved in useless arguments? Uh, 2 Timothy 2. And, and, and this, this keeps coming to my mind here because what I'm seeing underneath all this is the, 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 re, the relationship's more important than the, the issue. The people are more important than the issues. And, and what you always said or shown how to, to listen. And, and I'm, that, that what God is really touching me, is teaching me how to listen, because I immediately flare up inside, like especially with my family, those siblings. Yeah. And, but I love them and they know that. <laughs> but the people are more important, so the more I listen, I'm starting to meet neighbors and just listen, so I don't have to feel like, oh, I've got to correct, or I've got to show. That's right. It's just listen to their story, like you're saying, because everybody has a story. Yep. And when they feel accepted, like Christ, God accepts them, he loves them, he forgives them, when they can feel that, then I don't have to rush into any kind of correction. That's right. So let me, let me well, and when I, when I answered you 2 Timothy 2, the truth is, Paul addresses that numerous times, but listen to 2 Timothy 2, because it's exactly what you're describing here, and it is totally applicable to the Corinthian division. 2.14, 2 Timothy 2.14. Keep reminding them of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It's of no value and only ruins those who listen. Don't you love quarreling about stuff? Okay. Then he goes on, verse 16. Avoid godless chatter. You become more and more ungodly. Listen to this. Uh, if you come down a little bit, uh, as he kind of builds this whole case. You come down to verse 23, 2 Timothy 2, 23. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. Have you ever had anything to do with a foolish and stupid argument? <laughs> Did it produce a quarrel? Okay. And then he says, Catherine, the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct. We're allowed to teach in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. It seems that it's God's job to lead them to a knowledge of the truth. And that then they, they come to their senses, escape from the trap of the devil who's taken them captive to do his will. But our job, we're not to be a quarrelsome people. And that's what, in Corinth, they were just nipping and fighting about all kinds of dumb things, for sure. Now, Eric, one more thing I want to mention about what you said, um, about how like we look at Corinthians becomes a pattern and instruction for us. That's completely true. 
But what was interesting is that Paul was alluding to the history of Israel as the Corinthians, Corinthians, right? So if you look, I just have a little block here. Look at chapter 10, verse 6 to 10. I've kind of parsed it out. Paul says this. This is kind of the middle column here. It says, now he's talking about things that happened in the Old Testament. He says, those things, these things occurred examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Don't be idolaters as some of them were. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. We should not test the Lord as some of them did. Do not grumble as some of them did. So in the same way, there's like, we look back at the Corinthians to be like, hey, what are they getting wrong and how can we learn from their mistakes? When Paul was talking to the Corinthians, he was pointing back to you know, ancient Israel and saying, you see what they did? Don't do that. You see what they did? Don't do that. And so the things that were written down to them to teach the Corinthians are also written down to teach us. That this book, the entire history of Israel is yours. It was written down. He specifically says, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. So the whole story of the book is yours. You get to mine it. You get to extract from it. You get to see yourself in the story. It's important that you see yourself in the right place. You probably have a tendency to cast yourself as the hero of the story. That's generally a bad idea. You are not likely to be the hero of the story. You are probably the one who screwed something up in that story. But if you see yourself in the role of the one who screwed up, and then you see how God responded to it, and how in his mercy and his grace he brings a solution to the problem, then the whole book becomes alive because the whole thing is for you. Right? Not just Corinth, not just the letter to the Corinthians, but all the way back to the whole thing. It's all for us. It was written down for you. And therefore, we want to read it. We want to know it. We want to see ourselves in it. We want to understand what it means today. Make sense? Okay. Robin? One thing I thought was interesting, he goes when Jesus is talking about Jesus Christ from the dead, he says, of first importance. It's like, what's her missing the big picture with all these other little things? And I think that even goes back to the studying the Old Testament and the things that they've They got to where they made so many of their own rules and put them on top of God's rules. So, when like the one about the Sabbath, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. But the, don't lose sight of what Jesus did in dying for your sins and your grace. Yes, okay. So let's talk about this. So the idea that, so Robin's in 1 Corinthians 15, the whole path, we're going to, we'll preach on that in a couple weeks. Um, first, Jesus' resurrection and then our resurrection. And you're absolutely right. Paul places that as a first importance. But let me, for the sake of time here, let me use that as a segue to get to this last box on the back, the gospel as an application to all things. I want you to see something. This transcends 1 Corinthians. So I'll give it to you. First, I'll give it to you in, in Ephesians because it's a little bit easier to see there. Paul very, very often, learn to see this, because this, this will add fruit, give fruit to you. Um, he will frame whatever's wrong, whatever they're screwing up, whatever they're misunderstanding, wherever they're misbehaving. He's brilliant about taking the gospel of Jesus Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ, and laying it over their problem so they can better see a solution. So for instance, in Ephesians, or in Ephesus, I should say, in Ephesus, there's a marriage problem. They're not, the husbands aren't loving their wives well. And he could just kick them and he'd be like, hey, do a better job. But he doesn't, right? When he wants to invite them to more radical, sacrificial love, husbands to wives, 
what does he do? Do you remember how he addresses the marriage problem in, in, in Ephesus? The analogy of Christ in the church. And I would say it's even stronger than the analogy. He's saying, no, no, it's not, just, it's not just like an arbitrary thing, right? He's saying this is the very nature of marriage, right? That husbands love your wives. How should you love your wife? Like Christ loved the church, who gave himself up for her to make her holy, sacrifice her and cleansing her. All that he does, right? That we are to husbands. He's like, hey, you know why you're not good husbands? Because you don't have a good understanding of the gospel. Behold the way this man loved his bride and go and do likewise, okay? Except it's not merely, this is really important, it's not merely look at that example of somebody who did something, but rather look at this experience of somebody who did something for you. When Jesus is your husband and he loves you unconditionally and sacrificially and purifyingly, was that beneficial to you? Does that cause you to flourish? Does that give you your deepest needs? Yes, yes, okay, great. Go do that for her because he did that for you. Not just that he did that, but he did that for you. So the gospel is the solution for what marriages ought to look like. Okay? It is the same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. They're tight-fisted. They're not giving up any money. And so he wants to address their meanness, right? their baseness, and their failure to be generous. And he does so. Do you remember the famous line of 2 Corinthians? I think it's chapter 8. When he talks about how he overlays the gospel into generosity. Anybody have this in their brain? He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So he takes, whereas he takes the gospel and he applies it to marriage, now he takes the gospel and he applies it to giving. He frames Jesus' crucifixion in economic terms, right? Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And he wants you to say, do you understand how the generosity of Christ, as demonstrated on the cross, has become the great source and blessing for your life? And then how God brings life out of generosity? Well, the fact that you yourself are not generous, that you're giving 2% of your money to the kingdom and wasting the rest of it on a bunch of nonsense, what that tells us is that you don't understand the gospel. Because if you did, you would jump into that stream. The gospel is a solution to your bad marriage. The gospel is a solution to your poor giving. That phenomena pervades this letter. So if you just, I just flip, if you flip it over, if you look in this back box, and we're gotta, then we've got to stop it. It's just a second. Just, you can go through these, and you could tease that little process that I just ran with you for those two in, in, in Ephesians and 2 Corinthians. I saved you the rest of these. You can go look, and you can see what he is doing and how he repeatedly say, Corinthians, you're screwing this up and this up and this up and this up. But if you had a deeper understanding of the gospel, the reality of Christ's death and resurrection is generously pouring himself out for you, it would matter in every one of these things. It would change the way you come to the Lord's table. It would stop being about you and it would be about others because Jesus, the actual act of breaking the bread was about the good of others. And that would, that would fix that. Um, he says, the very fact, look at, look at this first column, chapter six, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourself cheat and do wrong, but you do this to your brothers. That could be a very strange thing. You're like, why not be wronged? Why not be cheated? Like, are you kidding me? I can give you a hundred reasons why I wouldn't want to be wronged or cheated. He's like, yeah, but hang on a second. Can you think of anybody who was wronged and cheated and took it? Yeah. And from that flowed life and the salvation of the world. And you'd be like, oh. 
Is that what you meant? That's what he meant, right? That we would see in the cross of Christ the resource to endure being wronged and even to be incentivize us to be cheated because then I could join in in partnership in the work that he's... It just permeates the letter, okay? So as you go through 1 Corinthians, these are some things to look for. You can follow the blocks. You can see his argument. There's all kinds of little freebies in here like... We're going to judge the angels. And Paul just throws that out there. Like, hey, don't you know we're going to, you know, figure it out. Stop fighting. We're going to judge the angels. And I'm like, I did not know that. How did you know that? That's interesting. So there's all kinds of things you'll find in there. Watch that. Watch for the gospel solution. Connect it to Acts. And I think you'll find all kinds of fruit. Good enough? All right. Second Corinthians. This week is 1 Corinthians. Next week will be 2 Corinthians. If you need extra books or extra sheets, they are here. That is all. Thank you.